0: Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some
1: greater purpose? are The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown
2: on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip.
3: Welcome to Extended Clip, episode fifty-seven. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum.
1: I'm JT White.
3: And calling in all the way from Toronto, Canada. You may know him from one of his two podcasts or both or Twitter. Uh, It's Will Sloan. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Now, Will, the double feature that you brought to the show uh, is Inland Empire, the 2006 film by David Lynch and Night of the Ghouls, the Ed Wood film from 1959 slash 1984, because that's when people ended up getting to see it. Why did you pick these two such fucked up, twisted movies for us today?
2: Well, you uh, first of all, you told me I should pick something sort of like high art and something a little bit a little bit low, because uh, I guess we're that kind of podcast around here. You know, Uh, we we do (laughs) high and low, Uh, but I I picked these movies, I guess, because uh, they're both movies, first of all, that I think really capture the feeling of a dream which is something i always value when i see it in a movie dreams are, are I, I i don't know they're, they're unusually hard to capture on film um most mm-hmm. most times it's attempted it uh it it's like i don't know it's like no dream i've ever had and i'm not even sure night of the ghouls is supposed to capture what a dream is like but it succeeds at it um <laughs> they're they're both also movies that I find interesting because they're heavily repurposed from the director's other projects and they seem sort of like the most extreme articulations of a certain style that they'd been building towards up to that point. Um, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, you, you get to these movies and it's almost like where, where can you go from here? You know, they're, ve- they're very alienating <laughs> experiences.
3: <laughs> Uh, I think alienating, definitely the right word there. The first time I watched Inland Empire, I like I, I was thankfully already on board with even like the later David Lynch works. And uh, and by later, I mean, I watched it during the run of Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, but I think out of that context, I probably wouldn't have been ready for it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that I like watched all of the other ones leading up and uh, compare that to Night of the Ghouls which is the first Ed Wood film that I've ever seen. So oh my God. that one, I did dive head first into the extreme, but I, I came out a stronger man, I think. Uh,
2: a more wise and uh, a more open man to different aesthetic experience. <laughs> It's interesting here because Night of the Ghouls is so deeply immersed in Ed Wood lore. Like, you know, if you're if if you're a big if you're a big woodaholic, you know, you'll be like, oh, boy, it's (laughs) it's Kelton the cop again. It's Lobo again. (laughs) You know, They're talking about the old Willow's place again. You know, I'm not sure what it would be like to see without any of that context. I mean, we'll we'll get to it when we get to it. But Inland
3: Empire, uh, the 2006 film by David Lynch. Uh, what is it about? It's about a woman in trouble, as he said so many times doing press for this film, including uh, to Alex Jones, who will definitely throw in a few clips throughout this episode <laughs> of him talking to the god himself.
1: I mean, how would you describe it though? I mean, I mean, if you could say there's a plot to this David Lynch films, I've just read a synopsis of it, and it's getting obviously rave reviews. Uh, I've got several here, New York Times, Austin American Statesman in front of me. Um, I mean, for those that, uh, I mean, to give them some handle, what's the basics with Inland Empire?
2: Well, you know, Alex, bless your heart, man. It's a story of a woman in trouble. And, um... And, and that's it, you know?
3: Inland Empire, what what is it really about? Uh, Laura Dern, she plays an actress uh, named Nikki. And before she starts her upcoming role alongside Justin Theroux, she she's visited by David Lynch regular Grace Zabriskie, who you may also know from the Seinfeld program. And she, she delivers, you know, a very ominous monologue, including, you know, a, a boy who created evil and things of that sort that you can expect from a David Lynch picture. Uh, The descent into, I guess, surrealism and just pure nightmares uh, comes over the next hour as she immerses into the role. Different types of reality are established, and it's kind of one of those movies where you just have to be along for the
2: ride for whatever David Lynch is serving up for you. I, I've got a question: um, what what drugs is are David Lynch on, and uh, where can I get some? <laughs> 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 Uh, JT
1: had
3: you seen this one before um
1: yeah I David Lynch is like one of my all-time faves and uh I think this was probably the last I got around to and like perplexed me uh for a while and this I think was my first time revisiting it and it's just like I don't know I hesitate to call any of his movies fun they're like <laughs> enjoyable experiences for sure but I like how in this one the clash of like I mean, I think in all of his work, it's, like, modern times, like, with his sort of nostalgia butting heads, and I feel like with his use of, like, early digital video, it really comes to the forefront.
0: Yeah, this is my first time watching it, and I, I, always, I was always kind of intimidated by this movie. I mean, you know, it's long. That's one thing. Um but, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And, like, it, it had its, like, own sense of rhythm that kind of, like, you know, it hypnotized me, really. And I kind of I, I want to watch this again, uh, you know, as soon as possible.
2: I saw this movie theatrically. I was in high school at the time. And I hadn't seen a lot of Lynch before this. I think I'd seen maybe Eraserhead. And, uh, oh, I'd seen The Straight Story, you know. I mean, that's the fun movie if you like riding on mowers. That's <laughs> that's pure heroin. <laughs> <laughs> um I feel like it took me, I probably didn't fully connect with Lynch until I got to university, actually. Um, this movie, uh, I mean, it was a singular movie-going experience for me. It was, uh, you know, an, an almost unendurable <laughs> movie-going experience for me <laughs> at that age. Uh, I mean, I remember thinking, like, maybe maybe this is great, but uh, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to be here right now. And I've seen it, I think, three <laughs> times since then. Now, and I don't know. It's like it's one of those movies that I think it's aged in an interesting way uh, with its with its use of like early, I guess, off the rack mini DV digital photography. I mean, at the time, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that in a in a major quote unquote movie, and i mean i i was i was young and very stupid and there was part of me that was thinking you know <laughs> what what is he doing why would why would he go for this look but i don't know yeah. i i again i was young and very stupid
3: um no, I mean, a lot of reviewers who, uh, or critics who we champion on the show, even like Armand White, who obviously, you know, we, we championed the God. with an asterisk. <laughs> uh.
0: I full unabashedly support him in everything he says. Actually, if, stop. We, if
3: we want any chance of him coming on the show, we definitely have to dish any irony talking about him. We love Armand White and yeah. we agree with him on everything, <laughs> uh, except for the fact that that on Inland Empire, yeah, he kind of just dismisses it as an ugly digital project uh, in terms of its visual appeal when really, I don't know, maybe it's certain cinephiles like us really have an affinity for that transition era between film and digital mm-hmm. and like the the 2000s Michael Mann movies and stuff like Bamboozled by Spike Lee, of course, those movies, the look of them are just catnip to me. So when you have a master like David Lynch using that to just make his most experimental film since his debut, yeah, you, you can't lose with a combination like <laughs> that.
2: I think it helps to get old enough that you've got to the point where you're a little bit jaded with movies and so like yeah like <laughs> when, when you're old enough and mature enough and wise enough that conventional movie prettiness um you, you know you start to hate it and resent it uh that's <laughs> like that that's when it's time for inland empire for you and also since it came out i i feel like it it both well i feel like it predicted and helped define a certain aesthetic or well several mm-hmm. aesthetics it's like tim and eric seem to be somewhere on the same continuum of this uh i mean watching it again this time i started to think a lot of like those movies like a talking cat you know like those late period (laughs) david Dakota movies that are shot in like two days with just craigslist actors (laughs) and whenever i see a movie like a talking cat it's like well it has all it has these faded stars in it with these like twinks that david Dakota found on craigslist yeah. <laughs> and like you're you're reminded that you know hollywood is this space where you know there are these incredible class hierarchies but it's also an ecosystem and all of these people are there and they're breathing the same air and the class hierarchies between these people are easily broken and they can fall fo- yeah. like i'm not quite sure i can articulate why but i feel like this movie is very much about that mm-hmm You know, what you're saying there, I think, you know, with the the actors and whatnot,
0: what really comes to mind is like Nikki's therapist, how he just kind of, it's just like some doe-faced motherfucker that looks like me, you know, (laughs) who just (laughs) like, who like stares off into the distance. And it's just like, you know, you, you see these characters, you're like, who are these people? And like, where does Lynch get them from? But yeah, it's like kind of this deep swamp of Hollywood where, you know, these, these, these people emerge from.
4: Who are those people? Yeah
1: the especially the towards the end the Hollywood Boulevard like street scenes it really reminds me Of like we talked about Damon Packard a little bit with night poles. Or night poles, fatal poles. Whatever you want to call it. Uh, but just the like (laughs) greasy like I want more movies that show like greasy, late night, dirty, disgusting Hollywood Boulevard. Oh yeah. I
3: mean that's the only Hollywood Boulevard that I know as like a Cinephile (laughs) going to movies of the Egyptian where, you know, you walk into the double feature and it's just all tourists on the street and then you walk out of the double feature at midnight and it's disgusting and you (laughs) wanna
0: go home. Yeah, and there's like some guy outside, like dressed as like Homer Simpson, yeah. <laughs> before you come in, and he has like red, like yellow dishwasher gloves and stuff like that, and like a pillow under his stomach. Uh,
2: I'm not the first person to say that, like this this movie is like the evil twin of Mulholland Drive, and you know, speaking mm. to I guess the mixed critical reception that it received at the time, I feel like the people who gave it negative reviews, and I don't know, maybe even my 17 year old self had this feeling towards it where it was like. Like Mulholland Drive was sort of like a homecoming for David Lynch. It, there was that period in the '90s when he had sort of fallen out of fashion, at least in mainstream critical circles. And then Mulholland mm-hmm. Drive came along, and he was Oscar nominated for it. And then he decided to go in this this other direction, this you know this late style direction, and, and consciously <laughs> sort of pushing aside any any crossover appeal. Um, and Mulholland Drive it's, it has an attraction repulsion with Hollywood. It's very beautifully shot. Uh, There are many beautiful people in it who look beautiful. And I feel like you sense a bit of David Lynch's affection for Hollywood and for movies. Whereas in this one, everyone and everything is grotesque. You know, Laura Dern is always shot like with her jaw jutting towards the camera. And (laughs) There's that yeah. entertainment tonight scene near the beginning of the movie that, <laughs> that where Diane Ladd host that show and William H. Macy's in it. And like, that's such an, you know, ugly and hateful show. And any of the scenes with Jeremy Irons, like the movie set looks <laughs> ridiculous. Like, I, I, I don't oh, sense a lot yeah. of affection for Hollywood here. No,
3: not at all. Like, if you're looking at the most, you know, beautiful by just, I guess, the standards of someone who takes pleasure in, you know, consumer grade video. Uh, Stuff It's not, you know, the film sets that all just look garish and overexposed because of the type of cameras they're using. And yeah, like that, uh, that Hollywood interview show they go on in the beginning is one of the most absurd, you know, media depictions that David Lynch has made. And obviously, you know, his hatred of television that comes through in his work and like Fire Walk With Me and this, I guess, and Mulholland Drive being a failed pilot, you know, really uh, comes through in this movie. And also... In terms of defining a certain aesthetic, the consumer-grade camera does really lean into that, you know, home movies of the 2000s feel. And particularly, like, the scene where the women who are in the the house with Laura Dern, uh, the young women who go to Hollywood with her eventually, when they're just like in that room with all that, you know, way overexposed like camera and overlit and just like one of them is just showing the other one uh, or showing the rest of the group her boobs, it just feels like Mid 2000s internet porn. Like, that's all uh, it, it, the aesthetic <laughs> is. And then also the amazing scare at the end when Laura Dern kills the phantom that's been haunting this film set. Uh, his face kind of turns into a morph as, of his and hers. And it looks like, you know, those scary maze pranks that people would send each other online, the jump scare lady that would come out <laughs> yeah. of that. And, it, it, and this, alongside the Tim and Eric connection, it really feels. Uh, like it's the best showcase of like that really dark, uh, grotesque but addicting side of the internet that people like me grew up on. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I mean what you're saying about like um,
0: kind of like the home movie, like the almost like you know '06 digital porn feel it has. I mean maybe maybe bamboozled mm-hmm. might be up there in terms of really leaning into the digital style, but I think this movie leans in, into its digital style like in a ways other do, uh, other movies don't I mean kind of like some of the shots you know are like color doesn't uh, render the same way as it would on a film camera or these close-ups look much more garish because of the angles you can get with a handheld. Um, you know, video camera. He's really leaning into the style, and like I feel like there was even a scene early on where he uses autofocus, mm-hmm. which um, which there's he, one zoom yeah.
3: that looks also like a uh, not Pro Tools, uh, like a Final Cut zoom as well, like not on camera clearly. There's yeah. a lot of like 2000s amateur filmmaking technique in here that obviously, in the hands of a master, can be used to great effect. Mm-hmm. And like the garishness of the film sets
0: too, which you were talking about earlier. The first like hour and a half of this movie, I was like, I never want to be on a film set like ever again. Like, yeah. <laughs> movies suck and they're evil. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: And yeah, Jay Hoberman even like uh, toward the end of his review of this, he, you know, declares the film evil into itself, uh, saying it is a good thing for the experience, I guess. And I think that's true. It's a film that sees film as a whole and itself as kind of an evil being haunting Laura Dern for three hours. And, you know, it's her performance
2: that holds that all together. So wonderful. to to the point you mentioned about uh the internet eddie a a lot of this or well not a lot of it but parts of it at least are repurposed from uh content quote unquote that appeared on DavidLynch.com, um and uh i know there were some critics at the time too who who I, i guess i guess there's i mean until recently it seems now that lynch is this kind of like sainted figure that everybody loves i I don't hear a lot of dissent towards him anymore but but there was a time when there was a very strong emperor's new clothes attitude towards him um and and i remember certain reviews implying that like oh he sort of took a bunch of stuff that he that he had been gathering and he sort of threw it all together like like the rabbits for instance um again with a bit of that emperor's new clothes attitude something about the aesthetic of the movie the fact that it does look so internet-y um and and the fact that it was comprised of a lot of this material i, I i'm rambling and i don't quite know the point i'm making but it seems to go hand in <laughs> hand somehow it's it's like yeah. it's like the 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 aesthetic the aesthetic of like i mean this okay the movie like free associative writing um, mm-hmm. It's the film equivalent of free associative writing And the internet, I think, fosters Or encourages that kind of relationship with art You know, uh, instead of art being something That, you know, you, you craft over a couple of years And it's like a grand statement Instead, the internet is like this trickle This flow of information um, And this movie sort of feels like you know, a state of the union of David Lynch's subconscious from 2001 to 2006 um, as it appeared on the internet. I hope that made some sort of a sense. The thing
4: is, I don't know what was before or after. I don't know what happened first. And it's kind of laid a mind fuck on me.
3: Any closing thoughts on this one, JT, before we wrap up and uh, shoot this one down on a scale of one to five bullets? Yes,
1: I think, well, I'm going to shoot this one down with five fucking bullets. This is a goddamn masterpiece. Um, I think it's like, I mean, it makes sense that like, this is the last feature. I mean, depending on like what you want to like categorize the return as, but it makes sense that this is the last like proper feature that like Lynch made because it seems like it's kind of the height of his fixations, uh, especially there at the end. Like, I know we talk about how dark the film is and like intense and morbid it is, but with all of the interplay with like darkness and just really like... I don't know bitter depression Lynch always juxtaposes that with like lightness and I mean I always think of like the um the blue velvet monologue especially in like parts of this where like the brightness of the light on the early like uh, digital video just like shines through and is overwhelming, just as much as the darkness is in some of the like bleak scenes, mm-hmm. and also just like the monologues from like country fried southern Laura Dern, where she's saying things like, Fucker had a dick like a rhinoceros, he'd fuck the shit out of you. I tell you what, like, I there's no way I don't love that. That's perfect. Yeah.
3: And apparently, so that's like the only thing that Lynch had in terms of a traditional screenplay for this is that monologue that runs, you know, about 70 minutes with all of those scenes interspliced that make up, you know, the second half. And I think it makes sense that the, the second half of the film kind of has that structure to it where it's free association from that monologue Mm -hmm. it kind of makes a little more sense shaping it like that Mm -hmm. no yeah i really like this too i'm gonna give it five bullets
0: first watch five bullets you know I'm, i'm going bold but i mean yeah i mean you know this movie you know it's classic to say like this movie doesn't make sense but i feel like you know through the sequencing of these images the weaving of like these different uh like sets like these looping of sets you know one that are supposed to be real life ones that are supposed to be in the movie the way it's all sequenced you know creates kind of like a dizzy dream logic to where you know i think you're right will where you said like this does capture dreams as the way i see it because my dreams don't make any sense and they're kind of like banal at times and just kind of you know just kind of disturbing in a very kind of uh way that i can't really put my finger on Damn. so <laughs> my dreams are all about having sex with the teacher <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. yeah well um <laughs> me too but in a, a weird <laughs> lynchian way um, um so yeah in, in a way it does kind of make a certain type of film sense to me the, just the way i walk out of it and i feel like i get it without even getting it you know so yeah. that's just how i feel about it
3: um, for me, I'm also going five, This used to be four and a half, you know, ratings are so fucking stupid. I feel embarrassing breaking down ratings in front of our guest, but, uh, <laughs> it was four and a half. Now it's five masterpiece. One of my favorite David Lynch films, if not my favorite, like, uh, you know, feature film that doesn't have to take plate or that doesn't have to do with twin peaks because I think firewalk with me would be my favorite. Otherwise, uh, regardless of all that. I think the way that it uses editing to achieve that dream feeling of moving from one scene to another in one cut that feels so impactful uh, is more uh, present here than even in the other Lynchian or the other Lynch films that have that dream feeling throughout them. Uh, This leans into it more than any of them, and that's what I'm going there for. So, yeah, it's a masterpiece. And um, what about our guest, Will? How do you feel about this film? And how many bullets? I don't know. I don't know what the Canadian gun culture is like, but <laughs> down here, a little south of the border,
2: uh, we take pride in our Second Amendment rights. Two A, baby. <laughs>
3: it's a two A podcast.
2: I, I'm told there are a fair number of hunting rifles in this country, not as many handguns, <laughs> but that there is a gun culture here. Uh, when I was 17, I probably would have given this movie two and a half bullets, and uh, now uh, that is double. I'm giving it five. And <laughs> Hell yeah. To the way that it feels like a dream. Have you ever noticed in your dreams? I don't know. Maybe my dreams are different, but characters become other people in the dreams. Oh, always. Lo- mm-hmm. Like locations become other locations. Um, and I sort of, I sort of like. Uh, okay, here's another point I haven't thought about, and I'm going to struggle to articulate uh, pathetically. But I, I, f- I feel like the movie suggests like the way dreams do that there is no such thing as a fixed reality and there's no such thing as a fixed human being like Laura Dern can be an actress uh, or she can be that Southern fried Laura Dern uh, or she could even be one of those like kind of porny dance girls that she hangs out with in one of those in, in that one scene or she could be like a hobo on Hollywood Boulevard I feel like dreams get at those anxieties dreams are often displacing us from where we think we are in the world Um, and they they reveal how tenuous and how arbitrary that placement is Uh, and I I feel like this you know one one of the reasons why the movie is so unsettling is because the movie articulates that too
3: I mean I think the most unsettling thing is when her character in the movie is dying you know there's a series of scenes that start in character where the movie within the movie is filming and you know you hear cut and you pull back and see cameras the most devastating one is kind of the climax where she ends up in hollywood homeless uh and while she's dying this homeless woman is just talking about a woman with like a hole in her vagina or something like that
1: she has
4: got a hole in her vagina wall she has torn a hole into her intestine from
0: her vagina.
3: Yeah, baby. How
4: tell us that shit? Uh, uh,
3: like, it's the most unsettling, maybe the most unsettling uh, bit of dialogue is what that woman said. I'll, maybe I'll, I'll lead that clip uh, into our break. So uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. Uh,
1: my listenership will crucify me if I don't at least mention the Dutch TV interview. Uh, that you did and and you commented on uh, the film Loose Change second edition and and, and what happened with the towers and just said people can't deal uh, with that. Uh, Why why did you even bring that up or did you know they were going to bring that up?
2: Um, You know I knew they were going to bring it up and um, so you know you saw what I said Um, you know we're we're all
4: you know like detectives human beings are like detectives Actions Do Have Consequences
3: Welcome back to Extended Clip Our famous segment Malcolm in the Middle uh, Malcolm Did you see anything Noteworthy this week? Yeah, yeah I was watching a lot of movies For the podcast
0: this week So this is the only movie I watched that was Non-pod related and it's stalked by my doctor, um, featuring Eric Roberts as the stalker doctor. And uh, <laughs> this is a Lifetime movie, and I, I I just wanted to watch something with a friend, something we can, you know, talk over. And uh, I, this was, it, it's I think this movie's kind of uh, swinging above its weight. Like, I think it is a little bit better than your average Lifetime movie. It's a little bit more uh, respectable, which is, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean... You could take that with a grain of salt. But, I mean, it's you get to see <laughs> premier actor Eric Roberts just be a spaz out, uh, over this uh, 17-year-old girl as he, like, yells in alleyways, screaming, like, I'm a doctor. Like, why doesn't she like me? And stuff like that. Um, it's real entertaining stuff. It's kind of like, it's like a TV PG exploitation film. It gives you kind of some tantalizing stuff. But, you know, nothing that crosses the boundaries to where, like, a, a middle-aged mom would turn it cool. off. Hang so, on. Sorry. Yeah, I have to be I had right back. a good time. For sure, for sure. So, I I had a good time with it, and for what it's worth, and it's good.
3: Nice. I don't know if we should, you know what, we'll wait. Okay, cool.
1: Whatever works.
3: We could do the middle segment without him, but let's not let him hear me say that. <laughs> Busted.
2: Hey, guys, sorry. I, uh, I I locked my girlfriend out of the house, uh, so I had to let her back in. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, that's whatever you want to do.
2: I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, this is a boys-only podcast. Anyway, yeah. Malcolm. Uh, yeah, you pretty much wrapped up. On yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, thanks,
3: Lifetime. Nice. I. You know what? I should. I should t- check out. I think that's what needs. Uh, critical reappraisal right now. is yeah. lifetime and hallmark movies Yeah, <laughs> s- li- s- the
0: one lifetime movie called like Cyber Seduction. His secret life. Like that's mm. that rings a whole true meaning nowadays, right? Yeah,
3: that one. That one's been on the radar for quite a minute. Yeah, quite a minute. That's not <laughs> quite the phrasing that I was looking for.
1: JT, what about you? Um, I am like. I'm ready, finally, in my <laughs> life to uh, <laughs> undertake uh, the films of Jerry Lewis. Oh, wow. And uh, so I'm starting off, I'm gonna, I want to do the Martin and Lewis flicks first, oh. uh, get a sense of that. Um, and so I watched the, the final collaboration between the two of them, Hollywood or Bust, uh, by Frank Tashlin, 1956. Uh, the, the tagline is a coast to coast fun toot. Damn. And what a toot it was. <laughs> um, it's like Dean Martin is some guy who like owes money to the mob and he's like, oh fuck like no, I have a plan. It's like I, I'm entered, I've like rigged this contest where I win this car. Um, and I'm gonna sell the car for money and then my debt will be settled and then uh, Jerry Lewis is this perfect like virgin ass cinephile <laughs> like they meet him in like the car line and he's like oh I know I'm gonna win and he's like so excited and like it does it, it's so funny how like so long ago you get nerd cinephile culture because someone mentions a movie and then he just like indexes through his brain like the actors, directors, and they're just like Dean Martin is instantly repulsed. But they like they both wind up winning the car. Uh, Dean Martin uh, lies to Jerry Lewis because Jerry Lewis like wants to get this car to drive out to Hollywood to like meet this actress that he has a crush on. Again, classic cinephile behavior. Yeah. Um, and Dean Martin lies is like, oh, I live in Hollywood right next to her, <laughs> and then so they go on a road trip together. There's some fun singing and the dancing. It was a Damn. great time.
3: A movie about stalking a girl from Letterboxd sounds fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good stalking
0: movies we've been choosing today. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: dude, I mean, I can't wait for you to check out the Jerry Lewis directorial efforts. Will obviously of anyone will tell you that they're great, but uh, yeah, they're they're great. I don't know what else. <laughs>
2: I, I would start with cracking up. Go all the way to the end. Oh, yeah. You know what? Just go
3: reverse. Just dive right into the late style. Yeah. Oh.
2: That's his Inland Empire. Yeah. <laughs>
3: that's how I did it with Pasolini. It was solo first. And, you know, that's. I think it's a good way to do it. There was a little bit of crossover in the late style of Jerry Lewis and that of Adam Sandler in a movie that I watched this week. Uh, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. And the connection there is that Rob Schneider... Uh, is in a getup very similar to Jerry when he's working at a, you know, Asian restaurant and hardly working. Um, it's the you know it's the same costume, and so we'll say that it's a cinephile reference and not the Happy Madison team being lazily racist. Uh, but I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. What a combination! You got Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, uh, directed by Dennis Dugan. I mean, what more could a cinephile ask for? Uh, Obviously, you know, the script was heavily rewritten by the Happy Madison team. But, you know, this is a film that I remembered really disliking when I saw it as a young, insecure boy. <laughs> you uh, called it out at yeah. the theaters for being oh, homophobic. Yeah. I don't want to see a movie about two guys getting married. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I would be 14 when this movie came out in 2008. And I, I was already, like, too woke for it. You know, I was like, Are, really? You think the thought of two men being married is funny? <laughs> um, it turns out this is a very funny movie. <laughs> There's a lot of very hard-to-watch scenes. And I think that's kind of what you're there for in the late period Adam Sandler revisionism is those scenes that are so hard to watch that they turn right around and become funny. Horseshoe theory in action. (laughs) You know, we we talk a lot about the random kind of assemblages of people that show up in Adam Sandler movies. This one, you know, not as many shocking cameos as some of the other ones, but they're, uh, you know, it really holds its own as a movie about real dudes you know yeah. just figuring out what they got to do to get by yeah. in this messed up world yeah ever since i watched entourage i've been obsessed with cameos so that's why <laughs> sam
0: movies are hidden for me lately
3: uh have you watched anything recently will that you want to talk about
2: yeah, uh first of all I think isn't Rob Schneider like one quarter Asian or something, so it's it's like that's not true. racist at all. So yeah. Oh yeah, so that's yeah. true.
3: And also, yeah, that means fifty first dates also not racist, his character in that. <laughs> we're we're uh, just taking wins all day today. We're just picking up wins wherever we can find them.
2: Every Adam Sandler movie, good in my book. <laughs> Go on, Will, sorry. <laughs> Uh, I watched uh, a beautiful film this week called Blazing Stewardesses from uh, 1975. It's directed by Al Adamson, who directed such films as Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Blazing Stewardesses is a movie I'd wanted to see all my life because it was supposed to be the last film of the Three Stooges. Um, at that point the three stooges were mo curly joe and then Larry had had a stroke so they were going to get another guy (laughs) Emil sitka to play the larry Mm -hmm. part so it only would have been one of the original three and um uh they were they were all in their 70s but then mo died so instead they got the ritz brothers uh two of the three ritz brothers uh the ritz (laughs) brothers for those who don't know and it's hard to imagine. I'm sure you know? all
3: of our listeners, you know, all hundred of our listeners, I would say 85 of them are aware of the Ritz brothers. Ritz but heads. for the
2: for the other 15. Uh, of course. I mean, you know, the kids today, they love like two, you know, old men who talk in like Brooklyn accents and just make faces. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen comedians who looked this old. Uh, and I, I loved them. I mean, they were just... They, they they just did shtick so hard that it wore down all of my defenses. But they're just one ingredient. They're just one dish in the buffet that is this movie. There's some kind of like soft sexy stuff. Uh, there are mm-hmm. like Wild West chases. There are some old Hollywood stars who like have a little dramatic plot. There's some music. It's just a big, like sprawling, uh, bad drive in movie. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. Sounds like a good time mm-hmm.
0: to me. Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, Matt, have you guys, you guys been seeing these drive-ins reopening? Did, would you have any interest in doing that? My windshield's, like, too dirty. Yeah, dude, I'd rather <laughs> never get a car wash <laughs> than go to a drive-in. <laughs>
0: I saw Jerry by Gus Van Sant via HDMI at a drive-in at, like, some weird <laughs> art school thing. It, it, I had a good time. But you know that's the only way I'm going to do it again. HDMI drive in.
3: <laughs> Was the audio piped in through your like radio receiver? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I don't know. That's a weird one. That's a that's a vast sonic soundscape to pipe into your car from I Jerry. Know. Yeah, you know? uh, but it is just an HDMI, probably a DVD rip, because yeah. I don't think there's an HD version of that movie no, anyway. No, no, yeah. Wow, that sounds like the real cinematic experience. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm right. jealous. I'll take anything at this point yeah no i i have come around home viewing oh, I love it. you could pause it whenever you want you could eat whatever you want. It's way better hot take but i think I think you're you're right kind of i think <laughs> you're right in a way we just have to, to everyone's missing theaters right now. we have to go the other way. everyone wants to go to the theater we have to find a way to be contrarian. um will do you miss the movie theaters
2: <laughs> Uh, Oh gosh. Um, You know, I I miss going out. Uh, I miss seeing my family. Uh, I miss being able to drink in public. Uh, Believe it or not, movie theaters are actually like not in the top tier of things I miss right now.
3: Yeah. 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 No, I've been inside. This is the first time. Well, we also saw each other last night, but last night was the first time I've seen anyone other than my mom and dad. Uh, in like five months or so. Wow! Or not five months since March, whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, and so that was nice, and now I can't get enough of it. (laughs) (laughs) I've
0: been jetting around. You know, don't
3: tell anyone. I mean you're an essential worker though that's, that's different true. both of you are true. essential workers <laughs> i lost my essential job so i'm an essential movie watcher <laughs> you're, you're doing the good work yeah. someone's got to watch them i just didn't want to get called out for not social distancing and now people are going to listen to this be like wait a second these guys <laughs> what the fuck because are they in the doing same room <laughs> this is the triumphant return <laughs> to i guess this is this would be like studio f because we've never recorded here oh yeah this is a new studio this we're is r- room f at the jean-luc godard chris kyle studios <laughs>
4: Now I tell you a tale of the Threshold people So astounding that some of you may faint This is a story of those in the twilight time Once human, now monsters In a world between the living and the dead Monsters to be pitied Monsters to be despised
3: Night of the Ghouls, Ed Wood 1959 we'll call it 1959 for yeah. the sake of the podcast uh will do you want to tell us a little bit about this film what it is what it means to you
2: yeah this film is the third and final in ed wood's kelton the cop trilogy it follows <laughs> plan nine from outer space and bride of the monster the and in fact it's a direct sequel to bride of the monster in that movie bella lugosi played a mad scientist. Uh, who had uh, a house you know the old house on Willow's Lake where he did experiments and uh, the house blew up at the end that's basically all you need to know about that movie going into this one that's why this one didn't make sense it's a <laughs> sequel and uh, I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, In this one, the house has been rebuilt, and it's been taken over by a fortune teller and a, uh, like, a phony mystic played by a former Western villain actor, Kenny Duncan, uh, a character named Dr. Acula. Uh,
3: (laughs) What does that mean? And one of the one of the great character names that we've come across <laughs> on the podcast, to be
2: sure. And there have been some weird sightings going on at the old Willow's place, so the police have called in uh, Duke Moore, uh, or an Ed Wood regular, and they dispatch him because Duke Moore is playing like kind, he's kind of the police department's resident resident ghost chaser. Uh, He does he does these spook details. So he goes there and uh, he he has to find out what's happening. And Dr. Acula, he thinks he's phony. He thinks he's bilking rich widows out of their money um, to have phony seances. But actually, his powers are so great that he really is raising the dead. But it's not just him. He's also got Lobo, a survivor of Bride (laughs) of the Monster played by the great Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson. And there's a whole cast of characters. As I said, there's Kelton the Cop, the bumbling comedy relief of the film, played by the great Paul Marco.
4: All right, take Kelton. Kelton? Well, if I was expecting any trouble, he'd be the last man I'd want.
2: I think what really attracted... Uh, uh, God, I, I'm going to say what really attracted me, but there's just so much about this movie that I love. It just... It, it, so much of what I love about movies and even life itself, I feel like, is encapsulated in <laughs> in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting with the fact that so much of it is, like Inland Empire, repurposed from just other projects that Ed Wood had lying around. And so it feels yeah. like there's no there there, almost. <laughs> Well, the juvenile delinquency
3: footage that it kind of starts off with after the introduction really is kind of a non sequitur, but it's a lovely uh, five minute or so detour to watch some nice JD footage. Yeah,
0: I thought there was going to be like a political through line through the movie. Uh, Like uh, it was going to, you know, comment, you know, this is what the media is not showing you or whatever, but it's just a nice intro. Just getting you into
2: it. Yeah, that's right. Criswell (laughs) brings up juvenile delinquency just to say, but actually this movie's not about juvenile delinquency. you've heard so much about how dangerous juvenile delinquency is, but there are things that are more dangerous, like ghosts. And <laughs> and there was another, there's another section of the movie, the whole section of the movie where Duke Moore is wandering around the house and uh, Criswell says, you can almost tell what's going through his head. And then Duke Moore just starts <laughs> narrating it that's because yeah. all of that footage came from an unsold tv pilot that edward shot a couple years earlier um and that's mm. the reason by the way that duke moore is wearing a tuxedo in the movie like he writes <laughs> it at the start oh i had opera tickets tonight no it's just he had to match the footage that he shot elsewhere and yeah, I was wondering about that opera line of dialogue. That was <laughs> yeah. a very strange, just
3: kind of throwaway
0: line in there. Very sophisticated police we have here—a little uh, Fraser kind of guy uh, over here. Uh, uh,
2: uh. Uh, what did what did you guys think of it? How familiar are you guys with the cinema of Ed Wood?
0: I uh, oh, go ahead. no, I was going to say I'm I'm a I'm a fake prestige motherfucker because I've only seen. Ed Wood, the biopic, and I've never seen any of the movies he's
1: directed, Same. so this was a first for me. Yeah, yeah this we, was my first time taking Wood.
3: We reviewed Ed Wood by Tim Burton on this show in our very early days. The B picture will you will like was uh, Local Legends by Matt Farley, oh, and uh, so that was a great double fit. Yeah, oh, great film one mm-hmm. of, one of the all time, better than uh, the Tim Burton film as far oh, as yeah. I'm concerned. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I at least got more out of it, but uh, this one was I actually watched this one about two years ago as the first ed wood movie i'd ever seen and then just kind of forgot about it completely and i think what you said about it capturing uh the state of being in a dream unintentionally really comes through in the movie because i watched it and then when you asked uh to do it on the podcast i realized I've seen this movie, but I don't remember a single thing that happens in it. And then as I'm watching it, it's like when characters from real life show up in your dreams and you're just thinking, oh yeah, Dr. Acula, that dude was all right.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Again, a salute to the Prince of Darkness. Always there is an unbeliever to defile the supernatural.
2: Well, one of the things that makes it feel like a dream is that the mise en scène is so sketchy, even by Ed Wood yeah. standards. There's just <laughs> like there are there are no sets in yeah, the yeah. in the police headquarters. It's just like, you know, it, I, I I think if you look in the background, you can see that like the set is just like like basically pasted over some mattresses on the wall that you know were there mm-hmm. for the sound stage and then when you get mm-hmm. to the old willow's place where most of the action takes place <laughs> it's like the shining hotel you know you never get a sense of what the geography <laughs> of this house is on the outside it looks like you know a, a split level maybe and then on the inside it's this labyrinthine you know um like cosmic space with like spiral staircases and long empty hallways to nowhere and curtains that lead nowhere basements, multiple stories. And, and that's very, that's very disorienting. Like when you think about your dreams, do you ever think of like where the walls are? (laughs) You don't like, like, like the, the spaces in your dreams are not concrete. And that's something that this movie has
3: that was a classic uh, key tip in those lucid
2: dreaming tutorials
3: and uh, speaking (laughs) Uh, uh, of Inland Empire era like when I was in middle school and high school watching (laughs) videos about how to control your dreams it was always just like when you're walking through a hallway make sure you take a look at the walls and where (laughs) they are so that when you're in your dream you'll know the difference but that doesn't make any sense but what does make sense is how yeah through editing you're able to establish that lack of geography you know when you have editing whether or not it's intentional you know in Inland Empire it recalls how Maya Darren will use uh, editing in her experimental films to kind of shift perspective and there's no real concrete sense of geography in this movie maybe it's because uh, there's a lack of resources and it doesn't uh, uh, you know intend to make that effect but it does and it works and that's Mm -hmm. why I enjoyed it what about you JT did you like this one
1: uh yeah I really dug it I think in terms of I was really taken aback by how well it like fit with uh Inland Empire in terms of proto Lynchian vibes. Especially like the fixation on like electricity, like a mm-hmm. little bit. There's a lot of you see a lot of damn lightning in this picture. You
0: do. The the kind of the, the, the dinginess of these sets reminds me of kind of like the unpleasantness of the sets from uh Inland Empire. And I mean also, I mean, this is like kind of like How characters are unsure of the reality of the situation you know whether is is this a a real seance or these you know fake ghouls or whatnot you know maybe not as um, executed down to a key like you know Lynch does but it's Mm -hmm. it's still there it's a lot of a lot of the same themes are being run through in this movie
3: yeah Uh, also the ghouls pretty nice-looking ladies (laughs) yeah yeah well that's
0: you gotta love edward not
3: that scary to me
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, maybe it, it, instead of looking for walls in Ed Wood's dreams, he looked for the back walls. Oh, <laughs> no,
2: geez, no. Jesus. Oh, I don't know, Do you oh, know man. much about Ed Wood? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> One of the things that I think adds to the kind of dreamlike ambiance of not just this movie, but all of Ed Wood's movies is, uh, you know, Jay Hoberman had a quote about him where he said, Ed Wood is like a toadstool on the fringes of Hollywood nourished by its <laughs> compost. The Ed Wood <laughs> movies feel like if Hollywood went to sleep and had a dream about itself, because there are all these, like, there are these pastiches of genres that were popular 10 or 20 years before Ed Wood was working. And they're full of people who are all kind of uniquely Hollywood people, but who don't belong together. So some of his movies will have faded stars, people who used to be, if not a list at least like working on a level movies like bella lugosi or lyle talbot or you know this one has kenny duncan who was in uh 500 westerns uh and then his movies will also have these weird fringe la novelty celebrities like Vampira or tor johnson or the amazing Criswell, who narrates this movie very well i might add and <laughs> yeah uh It it all his movies also have all of these people who are just in his entourage, like Paul Marco as Kelton, the cop, you know, just like desperate Hollywood wannabes, people who would be like Craigslist actors now. And uh, they're all just in the same soup together here. The Tim and Eric method of casting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love I love, you know,
0: the oldness, uh, you know, of this movie, because it's like a lot of the Craigslist actors now. Or like people you get off backstage, like uh, amateur actors. They all are like kind of smoothed out and kind of pretty looking. And yeah. One thing I love about older movies, you get to see old people on screen again. There's so <laughs> many like old, there's like five, pe- like five to seven old people in this movie, maybe even more. And it's just like, you're lucky to even get two in a major motion picture. Yeah, that's models. what
3: I call
2: representation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two old bodies in the frame at all times. <laughs> If you see an old person in the movie, there's a good chance they contributed money to it. Like the the old farmer's wife, uh, she was the wife of uh, that guy who... Uh, was like Bella Lugosi's stand-in in Plan 9 from Outer Space after he died, and so he's <laughs> listed in this movie as an associate producer, and so that means, oh, well, his wife, he and his wife both have to be in it, or um, Paul Marco is Kelton the Cop. He's an associate producer, so he obviously kicked in some money, so it's like, okay, Kelton's got a bigger role than he's ever had before. We're just gonna have like 15 minutes of Kelton like cowering by the police car and doing <laughs> shtick. Uh, so, like it's a movie that's just like, like it has no reason for being except that Ed would, like wanted to make a movie and it's just made out of <laughs> whatever he had at his disposal that, you know, together was able to make a movie. In, in terms of that, like consistent
3: uh, group of collaborators, the rotating cast of players and their contributions, you know, in front of and behind the camera, it also recalls, you know, the film we were just talking about, Inland Empire, where, you go through the credits of that and there's like special thanks and associate producer credits for some familiar names. One of which, you know, not so familiar would be uh, this guy, Jay Ahsang, who was associate producer and camera operator on Inland Empire and is the drunk in Twin Peaks return. Uh, The guy like in the last three episodes, not to spoil it for Malcolm, but in the last three episodes, the scenes that are uh, down in the, jail below the sheriff station the guy with the fucked up face who's just drooling and Mm -hmm. shouting and repeating that's the associate producer of inland empire and you know it might not be contributing uh in the same sense because david lynch gets funding easier than ed wood obviously but i think seeing that kind of group of people following an eccentric artist who was often like rejected by like the mainstream uh hollywood you know especially lynch at that period as we said who's you know at that point i think it was tarantino said he was up his own ass by the time Firewalk with me came out which bad take quentin i gotta say for him to say too it's yeah like, of my course God. i mean yeah he, oh boy <laughs> um let's see so the cops you know they are on the I can't describe this plot. Uh, <laughs> no. The cops come, they shoot Lobos four times and then two more times <laughs> the next day. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, that's hey, that's truth in you know yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, Dr. Acula is then killed by a real ghost, I guess.. Uh, and uh, then the, the girlfriend or wife or whatever, the blonde lady, mm-hmm. follows that ghost into, like, some fog, and that's how the movie ends, which is pretty, uh, pretty poetic, you know?
0: Yeah, she's dedicated to the underlife now. She's, <laughs> she's part of the darkness.
3: Oh, yeah. I forgot. While I was talking about associate producers on Inland Empire, one of them is Drew McSweeney, a.k.a. Moriarty from the uh, Harry Knowles blog, who has us blocked on Twitter, like from the podcast account, which I find uh, offensive. I was,
2: just, I was just trying to do some research for the show. Do you have any idea what the story behind that is? How did Drew McSweeney get involved?
3: <laughs> I'm sure he just like contributed a hundred bucks or something like that. Dang. i mean t- mid-2000s that had to be his heyday right that's when true. ain't it cool
0: news was huge he was he was balling you know drinking <laughs> I, straight out the bottle
1: funding lynch films man damn i wonder what ain't it cool news had to say about inland empire
3: <laughs> <laughs> conflict of interest
2: no review <laughs> was uh, drew mcqueenie the one who wrote those scripts for those masters of horror episodes did he do the that john carpenter one pro-life Or was that another ain't it cool news guy
3: I feel like that's another Ain't It Cool News guy, because I listened to like an episode of uh, Drew McQueenie's podcast, and he mentioned John Carpenter without saying that he worked with him. So I'm going to chalk that up to <laughs> him not having worked with him.
2: Okay, well, I-, I-, I swear I'm not making this up, and Ain't It Cool News guy wrote that movie. <laughs>
3: that's crazy. That is crazy.
2: Uh, Jamie, can you look that up for us? Huh? <laughs>
3: Hey, it's Jamie, or Eddie, While well, editing the episode. What do you know, Will was right and I was wrong. Uh, Drew McWeeney's did, in fact, co-write the Masters of Horror episode uh, Pro-Life, directed by John Carpenter. And uh, I made fun of him for not having written it. And I don't regret it, so I'll just make fun of him for having written it next week when i talk about it, that movie because i guess now i have to for some, some reason. reason i don't know I'll, I'll figure something out i guess you know uh any closing thoughts on this one before we give it a rating jt um yeah i'm gonna give this one
1: three bullets from the top i th- i like it i was i don't know i want i want to explore more ed wood <laughs> because i mean i think Uh, One of the most bullshit things you can say about a movie is like, oh, well, they had fun making it. (laughs) But like this, uh, I don't know. In it, you see Ed Wood's um, like admiration for other movies Mm -hmm. uh, like we were getting at earlier. And I think that's really admirable. And like while like obviously like the shagginess and the weird dreamlike qualities were unintended, uh, it just winds up being like a really pleasurable time because of that and in terms of uh, JT's connection to the stars when I was in like uh, uh, Middle school there was this girl who once she found out like I wanted to like at the time I was like, oh I want to be a director. Uh, She's like, oh, did you like I'm related to like Tor Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> and It's like bitch i have i'm 12 i have no idea and she was like oh he was in like the worst movie ever made plan nine from outer space so i was like i still have no idea what you're talking
2: about
0: <laughs> you obviously weren't a mystery science theater 3000 kid like no. me, dude i would have i would have picked oh up my on god that. i
2: i wish i wish i was there and i knew this and i could have you know dated her maybe <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> wow will trying to date imaginary 12
3: year <laughs> <laughs> you bring him on
0: the podcast just to tear him down
3: <laughs> a little bit of gotcha journalism at the hour mark what about you malcolm
0: Uh yeah i'm gonna give it three bullets too um i think maybe uh, looking into Ed Wood's work more would maybe maybe make me enjoy this more but there's a lot of good images there's some good ideas here i mean there's just like scenes where they're walking through um the the willow's lake estate where it's it's just them against a black background or stuff like that you'll see stuff like model skeletons scattered around and like a, a trumpet playing in mid air mm-hmm. and it's uh it's it's all very unique and it uh it kind of adds up into like a confusing elixir but it's one i enjoyed nonetheless and i also like the detail like when people die in this movie they're like put into a coffin yeah rather than being seen dead
3: you know it's <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a fun touch yeah. you know but uh yeah how I, felt. I'm going to go three and a half. Wow. I, I hit it three the first time I watched it. Didn't remember that. Uh, and then I went back and I said, you know what? It's a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's arbitrary, but I, I had a really good time watching it, especially watching it in quick succession with Inland Empire as a true double feature. You know, I took a couple minutes of intermission, made some scrambled eggs, nice. and I got right back to the cinema and uh it was just like those leftover nightmare feelings of inland empire <laughs> helped me really get on board with this film's feelings and uh yeah so i'm going three and a half and i'm very excited to check out more ed wood in the future maybe we'll uh program another one of his movies i here. mean
0: yeah that's the classic b movie right an ed wood movie
3: oh yeah i guess that is a little uh, too cliche no 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 no
0: we should do it <laughs>
2: uh what about you will well, I feel like three or three and a half is obviously the like the mo the more rational rating for this movie, but but like uh, I'm I'm coming in hot. and I'm gonna give it five, uh, just oh, because yeah. just because like I I would feel untrue to myself if I didn't give it five. Uh, uh so so much of this movie is in my DNA and um, encapsulates so much of what I care about that I have to give it five. Uh, and I would just say that. Uh, for too long, discourse surrounding Edwood was was, uh, you know, that his movies were so bad they're good, and people would watch the movies, like, looking for, for those uh, classic bloopers and blunders, like mm-hmm. the cardboard headstone falling over, or you can see the, the string with the flying saucer, but uh, I think True Maturity is, like, getting over that and appreciating his movies more for their dreamlike ambiance. Mm-hmm. No,
0: I was going to say it's like, you know, the important, like the right way to enjoy Ed Wood movies, like drop all pretenses of like horror movies have to be scary or like Inland Empire, like plots have to make sense. You kind of just have to leave all that shit at the door and those movies are better for it.
3: Yeah, I I you know, I pulled up Google right away, typed in Night of the Ghouls ending explained. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> had to had to meet up with my fellow redditors and yeah, <laughs> I just watched the
1: cinema sins about this afterwards. <laughs>
0: The new Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, CinemaSins. (laughs) Uh,
3: So as we wrap things up, no one sent us any emails about any of these movies, but there is an email from last week. Will, I'm sorry about this, but uh, last week we did an episode about rock music and we we watched American Pop and The Wedding Singer. And uh, there's a rock and roll email that we're going to do a week late. So uh, this is from Valerie Faye and it says, hey, fellas, Uh, there's also... we're going to really try and keep it under an hour here, so I'm just going to do one of these questions. I'm sorry, Valerie. Who are your favorite classic rock bands? <laughs> People online are often so negative about classic rock, and I want to hear positive takes. My picks are the Rolling Stones and the Who. I, I love this question, yeah. and that's yeah, why I'm only doing one. Question. Is because we, we really got to keep it mm-hmm. quick for Will. I didn't warn him about the emails, yeah. uh, and I don't want you know a breach of contract suit on our hands. <laughs> but <laughs> That's my good favorite, business. I-, I love Led Zeppelin. I don't yes. know about you guys. I love Led Zeppelin. yeah see I'm I'm, I'm
0: too cool for classic rock. I grew up in a optimist society. <laughs> I listened to you know pop artists exclusively but if for like you know I guess I, I guess it has to be Steely Dan. It feels like the tragically hip answer but yeah. I love Steely Dan with all my heart. yeah you
3: like Steely Dan in the cool way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now,
3: Neil Young, if you count that as classic rock, then Neil mm-hmm. Young's my number 1, but you know what? Frankly, I'm sticking by my guns. Led Zeppelin number
1: 2. What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I was going to go Neil Young, just straight out the gate. Yeah. Like he's the god. Like I fight for- the mullet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I remember I think before I got into Neil Young, uh, uh the someone who like showed me his work and like that he did like stuff outside of like what you would traditionally call like classic rock or dad rock like stuff like trans uh someone was like i can't like i never would have believed it that i love neil young but here i am (laughs) and that's how i feel
3: yeah what about you will do you do you take to the classic rock oh you know uh i've heard all the songs um
2: (laughs) (laughs) what kind of music does a will slow listen to let's get to the bottom of this you know, I'm glad you mentioned Neil Young because, like, I was I was struggling to think of who's, who's like, a classic rock band that, like, I re- I really love. And, uh, yeah, I, I do like Neil Young, so I'm going to go with him.
3: Okay. Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Okay. <laughs> and Crazy and,
2: Horse. And uh, that's going to be it for this week. I really failed that question, I got to say. I wish I came up with a better answer for you. God. It's okay. I'm going to uh, be disbarred from podcasts from now on. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, just thinking about why he couldn't pull leonard skinner out of the back of his pocket (laughs) the perfect answer (laughs) tuesday's gone anyway um tuesday's gone we released this episode on saturday now and will where where do the people find you online
2: oh uh i am on twitter uh will sloan esq and uh yeah i'm a man with two podcasts uh the important cinema club and michael and us
3: and if you're not listening to at least one of those podcasts, pick your poison. You're, you're, you're messing up. So uh, yeah, yeah. check out the pods and um, we will see you next week. Next week, you know what we're doing on Extended Clip? The Extended Clip Remembers Canada uh, continues <laughs> next week as we bring on Josh Lewis to talk about uh, Femme Fatale by Brian De Palma and Deja Vu wow. by Tony Scott. Juicy movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun with that. So we will see you next week. Thank you again so much, Will Sloan, for coming on the pod. My pleasure. All right. uh, Cool. Bye. It is time
4: for you to join the others in the grave.
2: Thanks for, yeah, thanks for watching the movies.